0: Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 minutes with Django Wexler. Literary alchemists. I'm Dave Roberson, and I'm David Subkoyak, and you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. Twenty minutes with
1: Twenty Minutes with is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest. To improve our own,
0: indeed, because it is an ongoing quest. It literally never ends. We'll be, we'll be in our grave going. I need to learn one more thing, and and there's it just keeps going out before us, dear friends. Uh, uh, the the voice you just heard, David uh, uh That that name may ring a bell. The voice may ring a bell. But oh my God, if it does, you have a great memory. Dave was uh, our guest writer for oh God back in 2012, right? that is correct yeah that was the what Seth Harwood was your guest host Yes yes he was and you were you were working I'm trying to remember it was a cyber thing right it was a it was a virtual reality thing
1: yes it was it was uh, a cyber reality virtual reality story set in outer space.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Awesome. Very cool. Are you? Are you close to finishing that? I'm actually about ninety percent done. Dude, we'll be knighting you before long.
1: That would be wonderful. That
0: would be epic. All right, but for now, here's here's what I, we have: epic waiting in the wings, Dave, and I and I would love to introduce you to to the awesomeness that is ensuing in this episode of Twenty Minutes with. May I? I would be delighted. Excellent. Well, sit back, relax, pour yourself your libation of choice, and let me introduce you to our host, uh, guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. Now... It, you know, I, I obviously I research all of our guest hosts very thoroughly before bringing them on, and I discovered something interesting in researching our guest hosts' literary heritage. Uh, for a lot of people, games are a diversion, uh, a pleasant distraction from the real world. Uh, but for others, those with the the intellect and the passionate curiosity to see the connections between the game and that world the game experience becomes kind of a catalyst, a a spark that ignites new perceptions and, in our guest host's case, entire careers. Now, growing up in Westchester, New York, our guest host expressed multiple signs of early nerd sign. He was reading fantasy and sci-fi, literally exhausting the local library's collection, staying up till dawn playing Final Fantasy VI on his Super Nintendo Entertainment System, <laughs> and subscribing to the science fiction book club, and man, does that bring back memories, uh, and generally immersing himself in the solitude of those delights. Then in high school, he discovered role playing games, or rather, he was waylaid by the local RPG mafia. See, these guys recognized that the people who would dig the RPG vibe were likely to be shy, introspective types. So they operated like the press gangs of old, scoping out the freshmen coming in wearing the, the Star Wars T-shirts and carrying tattered copies of Dragonlance novels. And when they found a likely candidate, they drag him into the boys' bathroom, shove some dice in their hands, tell them where to show up on Facebook, Friday with a completed character sheet, or else. I'm sure it wasn't quite like that, but you get the idea. Now, our guest host really didn't require much convincing. Or maybe it was Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know. But soon, they were playing, get this, two or three games a week. Sometimes with two separate groups in the same house. Now, for my high school self, that sounds like bliss. That sounds amazing. Now, in addition to playing these games, of course, our guest host was also running them. Developing these complex, epic storylines. A veritable tapestry of nuanced, socio-political threads woven into carefully developed and authentic. Characters. Now, as anyone can tell you who has invested hours, days, weeks into developing the perfect game universe, it's brilliant! Right up until you bring the players into the equation. Then they (laughs) overlook the subtle clues. They kill your arch villain in three rounds of combat and basically put a match to all of your hard work. Now, our guest host began to feel that way, too. And I think we all have at some point. Uh, And it was about then that his buddy, incidentally, the same buddy who pressed him into role playing servitude, started up a writing group. Now, our guest host was totally game, and even though the group only met once, it lit the fires of his creative engine. Prior to this moment, he had written one story for a middle school English class about chess, told from the point of view of the pieces, which I'd like to go on record as saying sounds... Pretty damn cool, actually, uh, but now he was writing for himself. He wrote a bunch of stories, and one in particular, Einstein versus Satan, was really good. His parents encouraged him to submit it to Asimov's science fiction magazine. It was rejected three months later, but by then, it was too late. He had written a dozen more stories, and then, of course, the internet came along, and he did some online critique group writing and contributed to a few webzines. Dude was hooked. Now, after high school, he attended Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, ultimately securing degrees in both computer science and creative writing. Now, think about that for a minute. I, I had a buddy in college, my, my best friend, as a matter of fact, who got degrees in math and theater, which I think is kind of the same vibe here. It really, it takes a rare kind of individual to pull that off. The kind of individual who doesn't see the vast gulf between those two fields, but rather recognizes the deep background connections between them. Now, these people tend to be highly intelligent, imaginative. And apparently easily distracted. Uh, Apparently there was a college road trip from his parents' house in New York back to campus in Pittsburgh where our guest host was driving. And somehow he managed to not only miss the exit for Pittsburgh, he missed the entire state of Pennsylvania. Coming to his senses only when a friend pointed out, hey, isn't that the Ohio State line? (laughs) Been there, done that. Uh, in addition to his degrees, college gave him something else. A new, passionate interest in history. But it wasn't the classes that he took that sparked that flame. It was the miniatures war gamers he started hanging out with. They saw history completely differently. And the way they spoke about it kindled a curiosity in our guest host's imagination. And to this day, he continues to read historical nonfiction for pleasure. Which, as it turns out, will have a profound impact on his writing career. He graduates Carnegie Mellon and hangs around for a few years doing, Dave, get this, research on artificial intelligence for DARPA.
1: Oh, man.
0: Yeah, that's kind of badass. Now, around this time, around 2005, he makes his first book sale. And I think it's important to note, however, that this was like the sixth or seventh full-length novel he had written up to this point. Uh, The book that he sold, however, was titled Memories of Empire and was published through Medallion Press. Uh, It does well enough that they commission another one. And in 2006, he writes Shinigami. Now, neither of these were pro-rate sales, but they were very encouraging. Uh, They're both out of print, but apparently you can get a used copy of Shinigami on Amazon for 45 bucks. So, and I'm sure there's only one copy out there. So friends, if you're a fan and you're into want to read this, there's there's your ticket right there off to Amazon. Now, it's about now he notices that there's people that are moving on and younger kids are coming into the program and he hears the big life clock tick, Ticking away. It's time to move on. And move on he does to Seattle in 2008, where he starts working for Microsoft. And here's where a perfect storm of circumstances collide. One, he really digs the fantasy realism George R.R. R. Martin evoked in Song of Ice and Fire. Two, the book The Campaigns of Napoleon by David Chandler had also caught in his imagination. And three, a few years earlier, he had started a novel titled Unforgiven, another huge, epic, and overly ambitious tale that he had tucked into a drawer. So he decided to apply the gritty realism of Martin that he had applied to the 13th century Europe to the Napoleonic era and began reworking his drawer novel to scratch that itch. Once he had a draft, he began seeking an agent because you know that's what you do, right? You look for an agent. And through a combination of persistence and sheer luck, landed Seth Fishman. He wrote another draft and Seth shopped it and Rock Publishing picked it up in July 2013 The Thousand Names book one in The Shadow campaigns hit the stands and according to Bookworm Blues, Fantasy Book Critic, SF Signal and a whole host of others, it was a huge success. It's followed by The Shadow Throne in 2014 and last July the third in the series, The Price of Valor hit the stands. Oh but wait, there's more. He's also published The Forbidden Library the first of a five book middle-grade series. Uh, he's also published a couple of urban fantasy novels through the fabulous Ragnarok publications featuring John Golden, freelance debugger. And he appeared in Ragnarok's recent anthology, And on top of that, he writes an irregular anime column for SF Signal. Now, he has been repeatedly asked, Sir, what's something readers might be surprised to learn about you? And every single time, he responds with the equivalent of nothing at all. Now, I beg to differ. Uh, one, he wrote a short coffeehouse erotica tale titled Magic Beans for the Coffee Hot Anthology. He once worked at a small tech company where the boss would storm out of his office every day at 3 p.m. and demand all the employees play Quake with him. His favorite word is activity. If captured by aliens, he would suggest his extensive knowledge of Earth history and politics would make him an excellent advisor to help subjugate the rest of his species. His favorite flavor of cupcake is... Pink Abella, and for those of you who are wondering, his pen name is his real name. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Django Wexler. Django, holy crap, you've got books coming out left and right. I, you've got series that stretch off decades into advance. I cannot tell you how delighted I am that we were able to find the time to, to, to chat for a little bit. I really appreciate it, sir. It's great to be here. Uh that that was a, an impressive introduction.
2: Um, <laughs> I, I'm gonna have to start checking my back bushes <laughs> to make sure that you're not <laughs> Well, well, well I, I do feel I do feel compelled to clarify that Pinkabella is a store and not a flavor. Oh, uh, okay. And they have probably a hundred flavors of cupcakes there.
0: So I see. And it was the wreck. The, the, the pink lemonade flavor was the one that pink you pink
2: lemonade would... is delicious. I have any <laughs> Many flavors, but they're traditionally the providers for my cupcake book launches.
0: Well, I, I pride myself on on accuracy in my stalkerish intro, so thank you for that correction. I appreciate that. So, You're and and Django, before we dive into this twenty minutes with, I, I gotta ask: um, were your, were your parents big like Django Reinhardt fans? That is where the name comes from. Is it okay? Uh, my, but not particularly, no. Um,
2: my mom read it in a biography, I think, and just thought it was a cool name. She was looking for great names for, for me and my brother. Um, uh, and just. What's your brother's
0: name, just out of curiosity? My,
2: so oddly, my brother's name is Cody, after Buffalo Bill Cody, which was very <laughs> unusual when he was named. And then about five years later, became a really popular yuppie name. And my mom was kind of like... You're stealing my, uh, <laughs> and shaking her fist at all the, this used to be an original name and now it's hipster so, crap. So there's a whole, there's a whole crop of Cody's that are about five years younger than my brother.
0: <laughs> I, I love your parents already. That's, that's, that's yeah. fabulous to, to, to name your children so distinctively. Well, and, a... and whenever people say you have the best pen name,
2: I'm like, thanks, but you know, I can't really take any
0: credit. my It's my real damn name. That's awesome. Well, let, let's let's uh, thank you for that. Let, let's dive into this. I don't want to waste any more time. We're going to get into our twenty minutes or so. Uh, the intro with, doesn't count as part of the twenty minutes; um, otherwise, it'd be very short. Exactly, exactly. I don't start <laughs> the timer until we we get to this first question. So, okay. And here it comes. Uh, uh, I'm I'm intrigued. Django uh, uh, about some of the comments that you've made about writing a middle grade story uh, uh, the 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 Forbidden library series of course is uh, set as a middle grade novel and you've gone on record as saying basically I write the way I always write I just tone down the sex and the gore and the and the language uh, and and that just kind of blows my mind I always Pictured middle grade writing as a a very different animal altogether. And you're saying it's not? Well, it may be. I just don't know what I'm doing. Um, (laughs) When I I started writing middle grade,
2: um, it it wasn't really intentional. Uh, I didn't actually know that there was such a thing as middle grade. I had this vague idea that I was writing for kids, but I didn't know how the market broke down or anything. I had sold, or no, sorry, I had gotten an agent for the thousand names. And so Seth had it and he was going out to editors and it, uh, so it's about, I don't know, six weeks or a little more, but uh, you know, between when you send it to them and when they get back to you. And this was probably the most stressful time of my entire life because it's like, you know, you're waiting on these people that to, to come back to you and say yes or no chart your destiny. Um, and yeah. Gotcha. So I had to start another project to not just go completely insane. And one of the problems with thousand names is that it's really long. It's like 200,000 words, which is way long for a, for a novel. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I need to write something shorter. And as I kind of worked on that, it turned into this kid's project. And so, you know, I just wrote it out and I'm like, okay, well, if it's for kids, I won't, I'll leave out the swearing. I'll leave out the sex. I'll leave out the gore. But otherwise, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm, you know, if I don't, (laughs) not going to adjust my vocabulary, I'll trust whatever editor works on it eventually to do that. And so I sent it to Seth and he's like, this is great. And they, this will be a middle grade novel, <laughs> but we actually had to change the heroine's age from like 14 to 12 in order to get it to work as middle grade.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Well, because so, readers so, read up, right? As far as their age yeah. goes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 14 would be YA, which would mean we need more romance and we need other stuff. It would not be the same book. So that's a, that's an indication of how little I knew what I was doing. And so my editor, Kathy Dawson, worked with me on it. But we didn't change all that much. I mean, there were a couple of points where she said, you know, I, I think this word is probably just not people aren't going to get it. Um, and we, you know, we change vocabulary a little bit or something was a little too violent and we take it out. But overall, you know, it, it's more or less worked for me. Um, I don't believe in like writing down to kids Right. when I was a kid, I hated reading books where I felt like I was being condescended to. But the other thing is I don't have a lot of experience with middle grade books. It was a category that, that, um, didn't really exist when I was a kid. Um, you know, I'm old enough that the, the joke I like to make is that when I was young, books for kids were like like long numbered series by hack writers like you know the <sighs> Boxcar children and <sighs> right and I, right right and then newberry award-winning books about dead dogs <laughs> uh, and uh neither one of those was super appealing no um, so no, i, I just went that. straight to the adult books but nowadays kids have like all these great books and so like people would say, well,
0: just think of the books you read when you were a kid. And I was like, well, when I was 12, I was reading like Dune. So it might not be ideal. <laughs> well, and I think that's kind of the point that that, that fascinates me. And because, you know, God, there's been, you know, you look at all the people, you look at uh, you, you look at uh, uh, Brad Bollier, Chuck Wendig, uh, uh, Lou Anders. I mean, a lot of uh, uh, authors who have established themselves or are establishing themselves as adults oriented writers have gone into the middle grade uh, experience and, and done very well. And, you know, anybody that's looking at that's going, gee, maybe I should do that too. But the preconception is, you, you ha- like you say, you have to dumb it down. And you're saying, no, don't do that. That that, that kids at, at that I, age level can take it. I think the most successful writers are the ones who don't dumb it down.
2: Chuck Wendig certainly doesn't. I don't know that. I don't think I've read Brad's YA stuff, but yeah, you know, I can't offer a formula for success. Cause no, no. I mean, Lord knows, you know, there are authors in, in the middle grade and YA space who are so massively successful and, you know, but that's what appeals to me. And it, it what was, it was what appealed to me when I was a kid. So okay. that's the best I can offer is, no. is don't, you know, don't underestimate kids ability to handle complexity. You know, you can, you can leave out certain topics that you might not be age appropriate, but it doesn't mean you have to like write like you're writing for stupid people.
0: See, I think that's good advice. I, I think, I think that's there's, there, I think there's a stigma uh, uh, around writing for a younger audience in, in some of the, some of the writers that haven't breached that, that barrier yet uh, uh, that God, how do I, how do I present this? Like you just present it like you would just like I say, take out the gore and the sex and the yeah. violence. Awesome. Well, Very cool. And a good editor helps too. Like hopefully you have an editor
2: that you can trust to, you know, tell you look, right for middle grade, this isn't going to work. That's always good uh,
0: advice. Always good advice. Absolutely.
1: Um, One of the things that I noticed in going through some of your work, um, you, you have female protagonists in both, well, really both series Mm -hmm. in your military fantasy and in your, your middle grade. Was that a conscious choice that you made that you said, Hey, I want to have, you know, a strong female character in both sets or, Was that just something that happened?
2: It's interesting because the answer is different for the two series. So Thousand Names, the very early conceptions of it, Winter, who is the the female main character, was not really part of it. It was just this story about about Giannis, who is the kind of Napoleon sort of Sherlock Holmes-esque character and his attendant Marcus, who is the kind of, you know, Dr. Watson, you know, Captain Paleon character. Um, if you know the Paleon and Thrawn from Timothy Zahn's Star Wars books, it has that mm-hmm. kind of vibe to it. Um, and I was like, well, you know, I should have some female characters in here somewhere. So I started playing with with this this second point of view character. And you know, in the original versions, I had it, you know, she it was going to be Janus's little sister for a while, or Marcus's girlfriend, and blah blah blah. And it didn't work. And what I eventually realized is that this character needed. You know, a story and an arc of her own that was not just attached to one of the other characters. And so I ended up going with the sort of woman disguised as a man to join the military, which I I originally was a little hesitant because I thought it was kind of a cliche, like it's been done a million times. But then like when I read the history, this is something that like really happened, not once, but like hundreds of times. Um I like I like to say the Napoleonic Wars and the American Civil War were probably the golden age of women dressing as men. to join I was gonna the say
0: cross-dressing cross began yeah. in, the, in
2: the revolutions. Well, <laughs> well, cause it was after the development of like national armies where there were enough people that you could be anonymous, but before the development of like hygiene and medical checks, which made it much harder to get away with. Right. So you have a, a span right. of about 150 years in there where it was like, like whatever. People didn't <laughs> take baths all that often <laughs>
0: We'll be back with more of our conversation with Django Wexler after this brief promotional break. Under 30,000 feet of water, the exploration rig leaguer has discovered an oil field larger than Saudi Arabia. With oil so sweet and pure, nations would go to war for the rights to it. But as the team starts drilling exploration wells in their race to claim the sweet crude... A deep rumbling beneath the ocean floor shakes them to their core.
2: Something has been living in the oil. Paul e. Cooley's The Black
0: is a techno-horror thriller reminiscent of movies such as Leviathan and The Thing and puts terror right into readers' ears. The Black, a free podcast novel available from ShadowPublications.com and iTunes. Ocean exploration will never be the same. Let's get back to the conversation with Django Wexler.
2: And so so I went with this character and she, somewhat to my surprise, her story turned out to be almost the dominant storyline of the series. Um, when I finally went through and wrote the book and then I outlined the rest of the series, you know, it it became the, the biggest and I felt the most interesting part of the series. And so that was kind of an accident, um, you know, when I very... At the very, very beginning of this story, I had read – David Drake and S.M. Sterling wrote a series called The General, which is basically just a retelling of the campaigns of Belisarius in a sci-fi setting. And I was like, that's cool. I'm going to do that with the campaigns of Napoleon in a fantasy setting. And it was going to be sort of much more true to the actual history. Uh, And that didn't work out almost immediately. but. (laughs) Uh, so the the original conception did not include this this strong character of winter, and so that was. I don't want to say it was an accident, but it kind of developed as I went along. And, you know, when, as I tried different things in the plot, this is just the one that worked really well.
0: Which is really kind of interesting because you, you have described yourself as, as a reformed pantser. Uh, You used, you you used to be all about the wing it and let's go. And then with thousand with, with the the shadows campaigns, uh, uh, the, the, the plot became so heavy that you had to start outlining. And yet here it is in the middle of an outline. You still are surprised and discover things about a character. What,
2: what I realized about outlining is that it's essentially just condensing all the, the sort of creative work of, of pantsing down to like a part at the beginning. You know, It the reason it's so hard is because it's essentially the hardest part of writing all condensed into one week rather than <laughs> spreading it out through the <laughs> lifetime of writing the novel. Um, and so I always hated doing it, but the results were so much better that I couldn't ignore it. You know, I was forced to do it because my... Agent and my editor wanted outlines for the rest of the series, so I had to do it. And that was like the hardest three weeks of writing of my life. But then when I went around to write the next book, it was so much easier and everything just was smooth and went really well. And I was like, oh, I see why people do this. (laughs) It actually works, even if it's kind of unpleasant up front. It's just a very um, cool
0: affirmation that, that even within the outlining framework, there's still room for discovery yeah. and, and creative exploration.
2: Because I'm sort of thinking through, you know, as you outline, you know, you, you still are doing all the same process that you would do pantsing. You're just, you know, condensing it. Right. But to, to answer your original question for for Forbidden Library, for Alice... Um, Alice is the main character of ribbon library. And I still sometimes think of the series as Alice because originally the titles all had Alice in them, but, uh, there it was deliberate because I, it, it's very much a story. It's playing with a lot of tropes from that kind of story, especially the trope of the chosen one. And the chosen one is almost always a boy and I didn't want that. So it's a girl. Um, <laughs> I, my, my basic pitch for Alice, it, it's, I, I call it the sketchy Dumbledore scenario where, so, I mean, you've got Dumbledore in the Harry Potter books, and if you think about it, he does a lot of things that are kind of, like, not good. Like, <laughs> you know, he sends little kids off on incredibly dangerous tasks. Yes, where go, in, go into the dark killed.
0: forest. Yes, you're forbidden that right, there's yeah. werewolves, but go. It'll be good and, for you. And- And he doesn't do things himself,
2: even though he obviously could because, you know, moral Harry's moral development or something. I don't understand. Um, But, you know, because we are certain that Dumbledore's a good guy, we just kind of assume that everything is always going to be for the best. Um, If you read TV tropes, they call this the omniscient morality license, which says that you're allowed to do anything you want if you're close to omniscient, because then, you know, it's all going to work out for the best. But so. So I wanted to the the genesis of Forbidden Library was this character who gets told that she's the chosen one and that she, you know, she's special and has these powers. But that the people doing the telling are not people that we trust, that we don't, you know, are they really, you know, is this really all for my own good or is it, you know, are they using me for their own ends here? Like what's going on? Um, And that's kind of a theme that runs throughout those books. So,
0: yeah, I think of it as sketchy Dumbledore. The Dumbledore where you're like, Dumbledore, what are you doing? Well, and and you've addressed this in, in previous interviews, and I'm, I'm not going to – I don't want us to take a lot of time on this. Okay. But, but the notion of the female character uh, uh, still continues to be a, a point of consternation uh, for for several writers, uh, male writers, obviously. Um, and and you invoked uh, uh, George R. R. Martin's excellent quote, you know, I've always considered women – people and away we go uh is is that pretty much your your take on on the writing of of the other the opposite sex yes i mean i have always said that the
2: more you try to mystify it the worse you're going to be um the idea that like the opposite gender is this like weird mysterious alien set of creatures is like just dumb you're setting yourself <laughs> you know, up for pe- failure <laughs> people are people are basically people there is way more variation within any given gender or really any other category of people than there is like on average between them like unless you're dealing explicitly with you know gender related issues like sex and you know other other sort of body stuff then like obviously there there's some there's some differences you know, yeah. stuff you, you probably want to talk about um and obviously there's differences in lived experience based on like the culture that you grew up in and in fantasy that can vary wildly, whether it's, whether it's the like sort of ultra patriarchal traditional fantasy society, or some sort of like weird new agey fantasy society, or one that mirrors what we have today or whatever, you have to take that into account. But like, you know, the less you
0: can sort of other those characters, the better off you're going to be. Roger that. And and, and we could, we'll just Put the period on that and move on. I I was curious. We we just had uh, Andrew Weston on, who is a, a, an ex Royal Marine, and uh, he uh, has written a series that involved a lot of battle. and He described his process for writing out battle scenes. Now, obviously, with a series called The Shadow Campaigns, uh, I, we can anticipate, and obviously, have seen already in the first three books a lot of battle. And I cannot think of a more chaotic and and potentially nightmarish section of a book to write than a battle. How do you go about crafting your battle scenes?
2: Hmm. Um, Well, so I I should start by saying, you know, obviously, I'm not a veteran. I've never been in combat. And so one of the reasons I write about the Napoleonic Wars is that everyone involved in them is dead. No um, one <laughs> can call you out if you got it wrong. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's not just that, but I feel like I have as much right to write about it as anybody else does because all we have is, you know, accounts that people have written to go okay. on. And so yeah. you know, I can read the same books that anybody else can read. You know, I don't know that I would write about modern combat, because I feel like, you know, somebody like, I don't know, Andrew Wesson, but I think of people like Mike Cole, who know been there and done that, can do a much better job with it than I can. Sure. Um, But but so, I mean, before I got started, I read a lot of history. Um, And in particular, I read a lot of first-person accounts. Um, The Napoleonic Wars are kind of convenient, because it's after mass literacy, and so people wrote things down. It's much harder in like the 13th century, uh where you know we don't you know have a lot of of written records and the ones we do are mostly concerned with you know kings and nobles and such but by the time of the Napoleonic wars there are like a million memoirs from all sides of the conflict um and letters and you know correspondence and whatever and and various historical scholars have have gathered all this up so that you can look at it and translate it from french where appropriate and so on um, so reading that stuff is is sort of the first step. I mean, the other thing is that like I tend to distinguish between a battle in the sort of military sense and just like people fighting because there are both in shadow campaigns. You know, mm-hmm. there are scenes where it's just like, you know, Winter and her buddies are charging down a staircase and there's a bunch of guards and they just fight them. Right. Right. That's not really a battle. Um, and that's a very sort of personal kind of combat. And that's something I'm really I don't know. Uh, used to, I guess that's something you see in a lot of of fantasy novels, which tend to be really heavy on the the fighting. So planning that out is is just a matter of choreography um, and sort of considering your your characters. What um, about the
0: advan- What about the story, though? I mean, it's yeah. it's that that's the biggest concern. I would think for me approaching something of that scale is you know de- basically degrading down into you know. Head hopping, and this is what happened. Is is there a yeah. story arc that you're teasing out there? Well, the, this is another place where I take a page from from
2: George R. R. Martin. If you think about the first two George R. R. Martin books, everybody's read, and I hope, um, you know, Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings. Um, there, I mean, these are basically about a war, right? There's a there's a you know a giant war, especially Clash of Kings, but there are only as far as i remember two battles that are explicitly described um what when tyrion fights the northerners and uh i guess they're both tyrion's perspective again the battle of the blackwater where you've got tyrion and davos so i mean one trick is you don't need to describe things if there isn't a story arc right if it's if it's gonna be boring because it's just like we fought a bunch of guys and killed them, then just skip it. Um <laughs> good advice. You know, George, George Martin is constantly doing this by having like, you know, characters hear about the results of battles. You know, he'll just be like, oh, we've gotten a letter, sir. We've defeated the Lannisters, and like, you know, someone <laughs> and tells him, oh, right, that's it. <laughs> and you and so that, you know, if there's if it's if nothing interesting is gonna happen during the battle, then we don't need to hear about it. So that leaves you with like you know, it, it's an old saw that every scene should either advance the plot, advance the characters or or ideally both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, and battle scenes are no exception. You can't just put it in there for the spectacle. It's one of the biggest differences between writing for RPGs and writing for for fiction is that like and then they killed another 50 orcs and got some gold is not really a captivating <laughs> scene. in a in <laughs> Um
0: but it happens but, all the time.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you can always tell when someone has directly adapted their uh, <laughs> D&D campaign to a novel because it contains all kinds of pointless combat. Um, you know, if you can summarize it as Have you read the original Dragonlance trilogy? You know. Uh, yes. You know, yep. Weiss. Um,
0: yes. Yes. The tattered copies. You bet.
2: So those are actually based on an old D&D campaign. And there's a part where they like break into some ice fortress. And like you can tell that clearly they just it was just a dungeon crawl. Like they just went through this fortress and killed everybody. And so like Weiss and Hickman phrase it as like an epic poem that takes up about a page of them just like breaking into this fortress and killing like <laughs> thousands of guys. And I'm like, I, clearly they got to this point in their notes and they're like, this is super boring. What are we going to do? And <laughs> well, they came up with a solution, which but, I thought the sort
0: of clever. Absolutely. Um,
2: But when you're planning like an actual battle battle, like a large scale battle, point of view is critical because the the thing about battles is that they're confusing. Like you said, they, you know, they're really confusing. And, you know, most battle, like historical battles, like – people on the losing side didn't know they were losing until everybody started running away because <laughs> you know, like things happen and there's, there's dust. Um, Communication the
0: thing in, is not a big, not big back in the older battles. No. We didn't
2: know. And uh, the big thing in the Napoleonic battles is the smoke because the, these before smokeless powder, you know, you could fire a couple of shots and you'd be in the, essentially a fog bank and no one can see what the hell is going on. So Keeping that in mind is is sort of the first step when planning. So if you want something to happen that's, like, important to the plot, then it has to be in a place where the main character can see it, uh, your point of view character can see it. Because, like, head hopping even in a battle scene is usually not great. I mean, it, it really depends on what your character is, what your perspective is, you know, whether they're commanding the battle or just fighting in it. I mean, one thing I, I try to do in, in Shadow campaigns is go from a variety of perspectives. So like in, in Thousand Names, Winter's kind of marching in the ranks and doesn't have much of a perspective on the battle as a whole. But by the time you get to Price of Valor, she's a colonel and is commanding several regiments and and has to actually think about larger concerns.
0: Which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Just the note, notion of growing a character from from the ranks on up. Raymond Feist did that beautifully in in his Sethanon uh, uh, novels and, and mm-hmm. the Magician novels. That that's a wonderful uh, progression of character arc, and really kind of think ties ties the reader in to the stakes, and then gets them to invest in that character beautifully. That's awesome. But it's also
2: the. I I think of it as a kind of tutorial on Napoleonic warfare because the battles start out small and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I Mm -hmm. figure like by the time of the third book, the reader's like familiar with some of the basic tropes and I can say like, you know, musket volleys and cavalry charges without people not understanding what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're educating your reader as you go. Battalion skirmishes all the way to Waterloo. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's awesome. And and you know, if, if you wanted to draw a parallel, that that's kind of you know, they're first level characters in the first book and they get a few levels and they advance and away you go. Guys, this is fascinating. I would love to keep doing this, but but the, the clock has actually wheeled up a, a cannon and is holding a torch oh. over the fuse. Oh, no. I know I'm I can only assume either this is a coup or we're out of time, and I'm I'm gonna go with the latter. Uh Django Wexler, sure. this has been a delight. Uh thank you so much for making the time sir thank you for having me absolutely there, there Dave there was some some serious writerly mojo being bandied about during that let, let's not let's just call it what it was a half hour of of excellent writerly discourse what what's your takeaway from from this discussion
1: oh there was so much I know um,
0: consider
1: consider the point of view remember where what you're writing about and 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 what that effect of the time frame has on the characters it just so much
0: yeah. Yeah, very much so. And and those it's easy to get lost in in the midst of writing. Uh, of course that's probably that might actually be like an editorial pass. Things to look for after you've written that nasty nasty first draft and and things to tweak in a line. Yeah, absolutely. For me it was you know I I, I don't have any impulse to write middle grade or YA novels. Personally I don't but because I am so interested in the writing craft, I want to understand that process. And really, I've, I've always considered it to be kind of this, this mystical, uh, boy, don't go there because it's dangerous and there's you know kids and you don't know what you're doing. It's like, I, I love the affirmation that, don't talk down to them. Give them. I mean, looking, looking at Django's the complexity of Django's writing for for the Shadows campaigns, uh, uh, to to think that that could be, you know, basically. de-gored, de-sexed, and de-languaged and slotted into a a middle grade reader, that's kind of intriguing and empowering, I think. And uh, I I hope our our listeners uh, hear that and go, God, I could do some middle grade. I would love to do some middle grade. And if so, fabulous. Do it, kids. Now, here's the deal. That was a great conversation. You've all been scribbling notes. I could hear you. In seven days, we're going to come back we're going to come back. We're going to have Django. We're going to bring back Mr. Subkayak, And we're going to add to the mix a courageous guest writer. A creative and courageous guest writer. And we're gonna brainstorm the hell out of a story concept, and it's gonna be astonishing. I can promise you that. I'm putting on my my prophecy robes and I can see in the future. Yes, yes, it is gonna be awesome. But it's also seven days away, and that's a long damn time. Dave, what, what, what can our read listener what can our readers listen to me? <laughs> <laughs> well, what can our listeners do over the next seven days to uh, uh to make that time just fly by?
1: Well, I, I think right. But stretch yourself while you're writing to try
0: something new. Nice excellent break out of the mold a little bit explore some of those things that that maybe terrify you like middle grade writing and and exactly. see what it is that's excellent excellent advice yes follow masters of advice i think that will see you far for myself i will tell you as i always do dear friends you find what you're looking for so if you set your sights on the awesome on the wow holy crap look at that if you look for it You will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it. But you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.